there's a lot of demand for reliable, fast information, which news organizations, that's what we do. But then on the, the opposite side of that, that axe or that sword, of course, has been you know, massive decline in ad revenue and, and layoffs. These times are like no other. We keep saying that because it's true. Now more than ever, we need healthy, financially stable newsrooms to rise to the challenge of these times. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Today we're joined by Mike Donahue, founder and CEO of The Alpha Group, and David Cohn, Senior Director of The Alpha Group. You might remember they were on the podcast back in February talking about the SMS-based platform called Subtext. Today we're going to be talking about how different newsrooms are handling the coronavirus pandemic. Welcome back to the podcast, Mike and David. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks you. So uh, we were actually, before we turned on the microphones, we were talking a little bit about the coronavirus. But before we go doing that, what's been going on since we last spoke with the Alpha Group? Yeah, I mean, it's been kind of an incredible, what, I guess, 60 days at this point. I mean, we've really had our hands full keeping up with the demand on subtext. I think the last time we spoke, you know, since then, we've brought on a ton of new partners. So BuzzFeed News, Hearst, Tribune, several others. You know, I talk about keeping up with increased demand, but we've seen our subscriber base on the platform grow to about 250,000 at this point, which for us means, you know, an 800% increase in the last 45 days. So keeping up with that means we're hiding from our kids a lot, but I think we, we hope they understand. Just for the uh, the sake of explaining subtext to people who haven't heard the other podcast, give me the 30-second cocktail party description. Dave is so much better at cocktail parties than me. I, I think you'd do it better justice. <laughs> the quick version of it is subtext is a platform that allows a host or a content creator to text with their audience, similar to an email newsletter, but uh, we think texting is better on a few levels. It's got a better open rate. People can respond so you can get a sense of your audience and kind of where their heads are at, what questions they have. And you can engage with your audience via text. And we have a backend tool that makes it all easy and simple. Okay. I think the reason we wanted to get together and talk was just basically to talk about how the coronavirus has affected what we've been doing and sort of our impressions of what's going on in the industry. Tell me about how uh, the coronavirus has affected you guys. I'm in suburban New York, right? So I'm in Montclair, New Jersey, which you know, is, is maybe about 12 miles outside of what's been the epicenter. And I mean, the truth is with two young kids and a wife who works full time, I mean, our lives are turned upside down. You know, couple that with the growth that we've seen on, you know, the technologies that we're working on for subtext and that type of thing. And I mean, it's been incredible, but I know I'm, I'm personally really fortunate to work with a phenomenal team who's, you know, done a, a great job of picking up the slack and making sure that we cover all of our bases. Yeah. And for me, I mean, again, on a personal level, it's probably a similar story to what most people experience. Uh, I feel lucky that like I, I'm in a safe place where, you know, we can kind of shelter in place relatively easily. And then, you know, looking at where we're at professionally, right? Like I'm now talking about the larger industry. It's an interesting double-edged sword, right? Because on the positive side, I think there's a lot of demand for, you know, reliable, fast information, which news organizations, you know, that's what we do. But then on the the opposite side of that that axe or that sword, of course, has been, you know, massive decline in ad revenue and and layoffs, right, across the industry. So, you know, it's really interesting to to sort of observe that and see how, 
you know, collectively as an industry, we navigate it. Yeah. And just for transparency's sake, this is not bragging or anything. I work for Patch. I kind of sort of fell into this job in December and it turned out to be the exact right job to be at when this sort of happened because I was really interested in getting back to local news. I, I was very interested in getting back to digital news. And, you know, I had spent a few months sort of, you know, learning the beats and, and working on it. And then suddenly the coronavirus came and, you know, we began to see, you know, the value of local news in this story. I know David and I were talking before we, we got going here about how, you know, there's certainly a national story about this, but the coronavirus is, is really kind of a local story. People want to know what's going on in their neighborhoods. They want to know what's going on in their towns. And so the need for local news right now is so great. And unfortunately, you know, we see layoffs in our industry. We see a lot of outlets closing, it's really kind of a, a torment going on, I guess. I'm not sure the best way to express it. On the one hand, there's a lot of things to cover, a lot of interest in the type of news that local outlets can produce. And at the other hand, a lot of the same you know, issues that we've been facing the last, you know, last decade of you know, how to make local news sustainable on these platforms. Yeah, I mean, just to sort of piggyback on that, because you know, to wax philosophical a little bit, you know, if you look at the last 10, 15 years, like one of the things that the internet did was kind of allow people to form communities outside of geography. And, you know, media became kind of more and more of a national game. But, you know, to your point, coronavirus is very much a local story. And you see that too, you know, to put a positive spin on this, right? Like, I think people, one, what we see on subtext is, you know, people asking questions, you know, via text to reporters and getting those answers. And that makes a, a world of difference to them, right? Like Alabama.com, AL.com has answered around 3,000 questions now via text. And these are, you know, important questions. Where do I go to get tested? Or, you know, how do I apply for, you know, the, the loans from the government? Things like that, which really make a difference to people. And, and also a sort of story that has happened locally, but across the country is while ad revenues have gone down, subscriptions have gone up. Membership and subscriptions are going up. You know, we'll have to talk about how to retain those people for the long term. But here in Berkeley, I'm in, I'm in Berkeley, Berkeley side, actually, I know their subscriber base, member base has gone up 30%. And again, that's in you know one or two months. They basically have achieved what they wanted to this year in the first quarter, right? You know, they, they do great work, but I don't think that's totally unique to them, right? I know the Atlantic has seen a lot of uh, subscriptions and that's a national publication. So, you know, there is kind of an upside and I do think there's really good stories about journalists kind of meeting the moment. But again, it's not all roses, right? I mean, it, it really is a back and forth struggle. Yeah. And to go back to the fact that, you know, I work for Patch, and this is something we said before, before we turn to the mics, but, and I think I've probably said this on the, on the podcast before, Patch is making money and they've been telling people they've been making money and they're making money now for a lot of the same reasons that we're talking about, that people recognize that local news content is is important and that we're seeing our subscriptions go up. We're seeing people signing up for our newsletters. You know, we're having conversations with people on Nextdoor and like what they're doing with subtext, they're asking questions about, you know, where can we get tested? You know, where can we buy toilet paper? You know, which, what restaurants are open for carryout? And so, I mean, just even imagine, imagine, <laughs> imagine surviving this without streaming video. 
with without without having Netflix or being unable to do Zoom conversations, where would we be? I think things would be much more dire if this was the VHS era. I don't think we'd actually have the chance to talk right now if Disney Plus hadn't come out in such a timely way. I mean, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yeah, I know. Just for from a from a sanity st- you know standpoint, I don't even mean, I don't mean just to dump your kids on it, but you know the these are really stressful times. I mean, having to work from home and having to sort of master technology that maybe you usually haven't had to do is super stressful. And then, you know, especially if you're, you're worrying about whether you're going to have a job or not. And I'm just not talking about journalism. I'm just talking about all types of things. So how do you think the COVID-19 has sort of changed the way people are communicating? At the risk of sounding totally cliche, I think, COVID-19 has changed the way that, you know, everything is operating and, and not even just temporarily. I mean, I think what we're really seeing is, you know, a speeding up of existing trends in consumer behavior, right? I mean, I think about something like remote workforces. So you, you would expect that to, over the years, eventually play out, right? I mean, there's cost savings and as technology improves, you know, it becomes more and more feasible to be able to pull off. But I mean, at this point, you really have to wonder, like, what percentage of people are going back to the same office environment that they left? Or even, you know, something like full-scale grocery delivery, right? I, I think, you know, that was a direction that, that we were going to go in eventually. But it's really been trial by fire in a lot of instances. And, you know, it has kind of dramatically sped up the evolution of, of things that were coming anyway. Definitely telework. I mean, that's something, you know, I live in the Washington, D.C. area, and that's something the federal government has been trying to, you know, implement on a large scale just for uh, since 9-11 because of continuity of government. You know, they want to be able to, if there's some natural disaster or something, and they've they've seen that when there have been like major snowstorms or something, that they're able to, you know, most of their workforce can go home and uh, continue to work. But, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of sectors that, that aren't, set up for that. And now they have to figure out how to do that. And I I think it's really going to be a major shift in, you know, how offices are going to be operate going forward. What do you think? I, uh, so, so there's a, a woman named Amy Webb who was a journalist, um, and is now very well known as a futurist. Yeah. She's Um, been on the podcast a couple of times. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Um, she, you know, just released her 2021 report forecasting forward. She was going to do it at South by Southwest. Obviously that was canceled. And so actually we uh, worked with her. She um, released the report and then took questions via subtext. So people texted her questions. And um, of course I wanted to text her questions because, you know, she's very, very smart. And I kind of, my question actually to her was, you know, how does what's happening right now change your report? Um, and funny enough, I'm, I'm summarizing here obviously, but she actually said it, it really actually accelerates the speed. And, and that, you know, it made me pause and sort of think about it, you know, like most of what we're seeing, um, you know, there, there are elements to it that will obviously go away in terms of, you know, fear and, you know, uh, elevated, you know, strain on, on medical, system, medical care systems and things like that. But the way that we've been coping with it in terms of our flow of information, I think is actually just the trends that we were going to see anyways, but accelerated. Um, in fact, that, that's something I've always said about the internet is it actually doesn't create new human behavior. It kind of just exposes existing human behavior. And I think that's kind of what's happening here. Yeah. And I think ease of use is always the thing that's going to drive things forward. 
you know, I was thinking about, you know, last summer I, you know, I was working at a company that had a, was working out of a workspace. And it was my first opportunity to have that. We were encouraged to take our laptops and go somewhere else to work and, you know, go out and do interviews and stuff and file from the field. You know, we're a media company. That's kind of the way we functioned. But, you know, there were other businesses there that were doing the same sort of thing. I think there's definitely a, an interest in having a, a workforce that's much more flexible and could perform in a different way. And I think we get some, get away from some of these legacy systems or these concepts that we need to have this big building that we all go to so we can work together. We have this technology that's been available for you know over a decade that allows us to communicate instantaneously uh, to large groups. Yeah, I think this, this is exactly what you were saying about this kind of accelerates us toward that because the, the ease of use and the desirability of these new ways to work. Yeah. And it becomes clear to your point, right? Like work is what you do, not a place that you go to. Yeah, precisely. So, you know, I think we touched on a little bit about how coronavirus is sort of exposed to, you know, some workflow changes and, and uh, you know, people have been able to take advantage of that. But we still have these issues with some newsrooms who that are, are have had to close down and had to lay off staff. And, you know, some of the smaller ones may not even be able to survive this because they don't have a, a functioning model. You know, what do you see? I mean, there's a couple things that come to mind. I mean, one thing that I, I sort of want to bring up, even though I don't think it directly answers your question, but, you know, I, I sort of mentioned earlier that there are journalists who are sort of meeting the moment, right? Like I think about different experiments that people like the Boston Globe or the Dallas Morning News are doing. They both did a really interesting experiment where they kind of created, they let people match up for needing help. So if you needed help, you could fill out a form and say, I need help. You know, maybe you need groceries delivered or something like that. And you could also fill out a form that says, I'm willing to help people. And then on the back end, they would match people up, right? And I guess that is a long-winded way of coming back to your question, because I do think at the local level, journalism has a tendency to either be what I would call service journalism or feel very transactional. In some respects, those are the same thing, but they have different tones, different vibes. And I think the news organizations that really figure out how to do good service journalism and not feel too transactional are going to be able to take the growth in subscribers, the growth in readership, and find a way to leverage that. I mean, you know, that's not to say that it's as easy, easy as snapping your fingers, right? It's a real challenge. But at least for the time being, I think that's going to be the thing that news organizations are going to have to figure out so that they don't come off as transactional, but they do come off as doing a service and then to leverage that into the relationship going forward until things like events or you know ad revenue come back in earnest. Events is, is a really interesting one as well, right? I mean, like every in-person event right now is on hold. And so there's a lot of different ways that events are trying to reorganize and reform via Zoom or, or other digital means. And I think in a world where those don't come back soon or even the same way that they were before, news organizations are really going to figure out have to figure out that service. And again, not make it transactional, but make it a service. So I just want you, to, if you could define what you mean by transactional, Good. describe what that is in sort of a news context. Sure. I mean, uh, these are caricatures, right? But And I do think that a lot of the industry went towards transactional for a period of time. I mean, we would probably characterize that as clickbait, right? I mean, that's very transactional. It's give me your eyeballs for 15 seconds. I will, you know, maybe 
keep you distracted from reality for 15 seconds with some crazy rage bait or, you know, some sort of headline. And then, you know, I will monetize that with, you know, advertising for if I can keep you for, you know, seven and a half, 10 seconds. And then we, we each go our own way, never really caring if we see each other again. Right. That's a very transactional arrangement in the news space. And I think, you know, that was something that, you know, we never like to talk about as something that we would do, but was very much a part of, I think, a lot of news organizations, not strategy, but, you know, it, it would get incorporated into our workflow. And performing a service, I think, is a very different. It's, you know, treating somebody not just as an eyeball, right, but as a, as a total human, right, with the whole package, right, with a brain and emotions and needs and concerns. And again, I think the people that are rising to the occasion the most right now are trying to meet human concerns. That includes like listening, hearing what the audience needs, responding, creating content that will really matter to them. And again, it'll matter to them right now because we're in the middle of a pandemic. So the question is, is are we going to be able to find ways to continue to serve them in the future when life goes back to normal, hopefully sooner rather than later, rather than go back to starting to treat them like something transactional. And I think a, a big part of that is both finding the right content, like what meets people's lives, their needs, and also product, right? Like what is the product, the means by which you do it? Another really interesting experiment that I've seen, I apologize, I can't remember the organization, I think it was a public radio station, is producing educational content for children, which right now, I mean, you know, we've been joking about it, right? Disney Plus is, is one tool, but like every parent right now is struggling to figure out how to keep their kids not just busy, but, you know, all day, but, you know, kind of engaged somehow. And I think that's actually another space that news organizations can serve their audience. This is a conversation we've had many, many times in many different ways on the podcast about, you know, identifying who your audience is and then have them in whatever means they can tell you what it is they want from you and then you providing it to them. And then that's the basis for what you're doing as opposed to you just taking their presence, like you said, through, through clickbait. We, we have various tools that allow us to do that. I think, you know, you sort of alluded to subtext that, that can do some of that. You, you know, the conversations that a, a journalist can have with their audience so that they can to see what information they want and be able to tell them the things that they need. And so then it becomes the the relationship is the thing of value that you're creating. And I think right now we're in we're in a situation where the relationship is, you know, people don't know a lot of information about what's going on with testing or or whatever in their community. They don't know how many people are have tested positive, or they don't know how many deaths there are. And it's the, the journalist's job to find that and deliver that, and then find out what other things questions that they can answer. But to your point is, you know, in a few months, hopefully in a few months, when we've begun to move beyond this, are we going to be able to carry this stuff over into the recovery? And on top of that, you know, we're going to be entering into a really deeply into the election cycle. Is this something that a relationship they're going to be able to continue in, the, in that arena? What, what do you guys think? Riffing off of kind of what you've been talking about, something else that I've said about journalism is especially at the local level, it, it's really a way for a community to speak to itself, right? And so there's like a responsibility there. There's a leadership role there. A news organization's role is to help a community speak to itself. And again, right now, local communities really need to speak to themselves and hear what's happening in a way that maybe they haven't in a little bit. So it'll be interesting, you know, to see if that desire or need is still there. And there's nothing that will kind of snap us back into the opposite 
in terms of the size of the community than a national election, right? Because all of a sudden there becomes this big narrative about, you know, the community being the United States, the entire country. I mean, there are local elections as well. And, and hopefully, you know, maybe communities will want to speak to themselves about those local elections with the same fervor. But at least in my lifetime, I've only ever seen that become kind of a national story. And again, this is not to rag on national media, but just to say, I don't know if you're a local news organization, if the national election makes that transition easier or not. As we get a few months out of this, where do you hope newsrooms will be as far as, you know, what lessons do you think they will have learned from from the coronavirus? I think one of the really interesting things about the time that we're living through right now with COVID and all that is, I kind of mentioned it before, but I think some of the more progressive, innovative media organizations are really kind of thinking about how they humanize themselves and how they interact with their audience somewhere outside of the the chaos of social media and like what the value really looks like there. You know, for years, everybody spent so much time and effort chasing scale on social platforms only to kind of realize that they have built their business on someone else's land. I think it's been really incredible to see more and more media companies taking back control of the relationship with the readers and by extension, their own destinies, right? I, you know, I use this anecdote with people all the time, but like we run a text subscription platform that gives people really kind of unprecedented access to the personalities, the journalists that they love. And that means sometimes we get emails or texts from people that have to unsubscribe. And I can't tell you how many of those messages ask us to specifically not tell the host that they're unsubscribing, which I think kind of speaks volumes. It's true. I think it speaks volumes about the level of intimacy that people are creating on our platform and in various other platforms that, you know, are free of the the sort of corrosive white noise of something like Twitter, right? I mean, it's a real opportunity to open up an earnest dialogue and create value that really hasn't existed for, for some time. How about you, David? You got any thoughts? You know, when you're talking about, you know, there's been this push within journalism to kind of listen more. And I think there's lots of great people who've been working on this, right? Like there's been innovation about how to deal with coronavirus within the journalism community. There's like a Slack community called Gather that I uh, that has been really helpful for me. I was, you know, there's been Zoom meetings with among journalists to talk about stuff. And one of the things that has been interesting or that I'm thinking about is when Web 2.0 first came about, right? Like, you know, let's say 2000 four, five, and six-ish, that became kind of the new frontier of where you could go to kind of listen and hear things. And it was kind of punk rock, I'll say, right? Um, And interestingly enough, I think news organizations are kind of trying to claim that feeling back from platforms, right? Because maybe it's because of their scale or whatever, but you have algorithms now that kind of act as gatekeepers. And that doesn't allow for the kind of listening that you can do at a local level or human to human. The platforms are have almost become like the man, so to speak. And I think local news organizations are in a better spot to listen and understand and respond to their audience. Granted, it's a little bit more, it doesn't have the same kind of scale of a Facebook or a Twitter or whatever, but at least right now, it feels like that's the space. And it means, it means using different tools and different you know, means. And certainly social is still a part of that, but it feels like there's been this recoil even, you know, before this from a, from a business perspective, I think there was a recoil, but right now it feels like 
at least the local organizations that I'm watching that are doing interesting things are doing it like I just described with the Boston Globe and Dallas Morning News. It's it's not that they're just going on Facebook Live and you know streaming something on Facebook Live, and you know I'm sure some are doing that, but that doesn't feel like the way to actually meet people's needs anymore. The way that you know if we had been talking ten years ago, those would have been the interesting spaces that were kind of meeting the needs at the time. As I think about it now, there's an interesting kind of shift in terms of where journalists are putting emphasis and trying to find the edges and the solutions. So where do you think they're, they're going? I mean, where do, you th- where do you see them looking? I think some of them are trying to do things to what Mike said, kind of owning their own space, right? Like, again, something simple like what the Boston Globe or Dallas Morning News are doing, or even again within journalism community, there was the open news group started something called micro loans for journalists. And that was just the community coming together and offering micro loans to other journalists who were laid off, right? And that's just a tool that that was put together within, I think, some of the folks from open the open news group and some others. Again, there, there are tools like Subtext or Harkin. And I think there are also... And I have seen this. News organizations are themselves doing Zooms, right? I've heard of, I think it was the Christian Science Monitor, CS Monitor, is inviting members into private Zooms, like 30 or 40 at a time, to talk with the reporters who are doing things, right? So I think there's all kinds of different ways where these conversations are starting to happen. But again, it's at a smaller and local level to try and meet that human need rather than relying on big platforms and some algorithms that act as the gatekeepers. Just kind of piggyback on that. I, I mean, you're seeing you know organizations like Protocol, the Information, the Journal, even prior to COVID, really starting to experiment with things like scheduled conference calls with the journalists to you know discuss certain stories that they're working on and that type of thing. And I, I think it's a really fascinating paradigm. It's not a paradigm that would have existed previously. And I think, you know, to our previous points about COVID kind of speeding up the natural evolution of a lot of these things, like the Zoom meetings that Dave brings up are a really good example of inviting people into the process, opening up an earnest dialogue, and hopefully building like a tremendous amount of unique value that you wouldn't otherwise be able to achieve with something like a newsletter, right? Yeah. You guys are giving me a lot of things to talk about. Maybe we, you know, we can get back together in a few months when things are more normal than they they are now. I can't say they're going to be normal, but they're going to be more normal, whatever normal is. David, Mike, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Again, it's the Alpha Group. Check out Subtext. It's a great way for newsrooms to communicate with their audience. You guys take care of yourselves. You too. Thank you, Michael. Be well. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.